1 Kings chapter 15. We'll ask God's blessing on this time. Lord, we are coming to your word with a desire and an open heart, Lord, for you to speak to us through your word. We just thank you so much for the instruction that your word gives us, the, the lessons, Lord, that we're able to see in the scripture. And Lord, we just thank you too that your word is alive and that it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It separates between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts in the intent of the heart, Lord. And there's power in your word. And I pray, God, that we would reverence it, that we would hunger after it, we would read it and digest it, and, Lord, that we would put into practice, we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. We ask you these things in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, as we've been studying, basically, Israel's trans... trans transition from being a God-governed nation to being a man-governed or man-ruled nation where they have kings. And we've seen that. We've seen that transition from the, the period of the judges, Samuel probably being the last judge, I would call him the last judge in Israel's history, and then Saul being anointed the first king, and then David after him, and then Solomon, and then from Solomon you've got... Um, Rehoboam, his son, and then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the kingdoms divided at that point. And where we're picking up now here in 1 Kings chapter 15, and, and probably a little, little bit in the previous chapter, we're going to be seeing a lot more kings, is all I'm going to say. We're going to see a, basically a, a summary of the lives of the kings of the northern ten tribes of Israel and of the two southern tribes of Judah and of Benjamin, um, and, and, and we're going to go back and forth, we're going to hop back and forth, and they will reference, each king is going to be referenced by at what point he began to reign in the life of the opposing king's reign. So it, it begins right here in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, reigned Abijam over Judah. So it's the 18th year of Jeroboam, and Abijam is now going to be reigning in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it says in verse 2 that three years he reigned in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abi Shalom. And verse 3, it says that he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him speaking probably of Rehoboam, and it says, And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, did the Lord his God give him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except for only in the matter of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. So we see this guy Abijam. He is um, 
the son of Rehoboam, and and as a result, um, and actually, I take that back. Is it Rehoboam? Previous chapter. I'm just making an assumption. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it has to be him because, like I said, we're we're this is the point where the kingdoms are divided, and now we're covering each kind of descendants of each, the northern and the southern. But here's the thing that's noteworthy about him, and this is the thing that you're going to see as we continue on in our study of 1 Kings, is that each one of these kings, whether it's of the northern tribe or whether or the northern kingdom or if it's of the southern kingdom of Judah, their lives typically are going to be summarized in a very simple way. They're usually going to be, the summary will be something like this. This king did that which was, and it'll either be evil in the sight of the Lord or did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. It just kind of condenses the Reader's Digest version. His life is condensed to just the simple point of whether or not he was obedient, whether he, he walked in faithfulness or obedience to God or whether he, he did his own thing and perpetuated the sins of either his father or, again, to encourage the people to, to commit sin or sacrilege in, in worshiping idols. And for this guy, Abijam, and again, too, just for me, the, the note, the, you know, the, the interesting thing is how quickly a, a family can fall away from being right with God. Because now we're just looking at a couple of generations, David, Solomon, Rehoboam and now Abijam and in verse 3 it says he walked in all the sins of his father which he had done before him and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. David is that reference point that you're going to see time and time again and David was a, a godly man. He, he, he had his problems and, and they're even mentioned here once again but the bottom line is, is God sees the heart. I mean, we might stumble and fall. And the thing I love about the Scriptures is that in the Scriptures, with just about every person that you see God using, their faults are mentioned as well. Their failures, their sins are mentioned. And I think that there's only two exceptions of, 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 of those whose sins are not mentioned. They're a picture of Jesus. And actually, I don't know if I should throw this out, see if you kind of a Bible trivia question, but do you know who those two persons are that are mentioned in the scripture where you don't see any mention of a sin or of a fault that they committed. So, did I hear some whispering? Oh, okay, there's three people then. <laughs> Enoch walked with God and he was not. Amen. Who else? Joseph. That's right. Andrea gets a star on my refrigerator. So do you, Teresa. There's another one. Daniel. Okay, there's another one too. Now that I think about it, you know, I, I was listening to a Bible study and they said there were two and they mentioned Joseph and they mentioned the New Testament counterpart of Joseph. But uh, actually, maybe it's Daniel I'm thinking of, but the new, there's a New Testament counterpart of that as well, which would be who? All right, never mind. That's It was a... <laughs> <laughs> Stephen's another one, okay? <laughs> and I forgot that John, that's right. John. And and actually, you know what? This is my confusion is because I'm thinking actually of two an Old Testament, New Testament that are referred to as beloved. 
That's my mistake. And that's why I said two. And, and, and the answer is Daniel and John. In the Old Testament, Daniel's referred to as beloved and John is referred to as beloved. But anyway, let's get back to our passage here. This is what happens when I go off my notes, which I don't have very many notes, so it's easy to do. But uh, getting back to Ab Abijam, he walked in the sins of his father. His heart was not perfect as, his, as, as, as David, his father. And yet, I love verse 4 because, again, to, to me it demonstrates the mercy that God has on David's household for his sake. And again, you know, for me, this is a, a great reminder too. I think sometimes we think that our walk with the Lord doesn't affect others, whether we're doing well in our walk or whether we're doing poorly in our walk, but it does. It affects the next generation that's coming up. And again, not only walk with God because the Lord loves you and He's faithful and He sacrificed everything to redeem you, but have a a walk with God in which you're doing that which is right in the eyes of the Lord for the sake of your children and of, of their children's children as they grow up because that's what it says regard, uh, regarding Abijam. Even though he didn't deserve for God to raise up his son and establish him as king, God does it for David's sake. That four generations previous and the Lord is still blessing the household of David even though his son has departed. And it says in verse 5 that he did it because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except for in the matter of Uriah, or Uriah the Hittite. And we know that whole story and we won't rehash it. Verse 6, it says, Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. And it says, And the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa his son reigned in his stead. So that's the next king that is going to rise up in the southern kingdom of Judah. This is now the fifth generation from David's lineage. And it says in verse 9, it says, In the twentieth year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, reigned Asa over Judah. And one and four, or forty and one years he reigned in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abi Shalom. Same name as the previous king, or same mom. And so either his brother or it's referring to her as his grandmother. But it says... Um, where am I? I lost my spot. Verse 10, thank you. And it says in verse 11, And Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father. Like I said, that one line summary. And again, I guess for me it makes me think, and now that yeah, I'm getting up there, not that old yet but 56 and and uh should the lord delay or tarry in his return you know what is it that you'd want how would someone summarize your life as a believer and that's what this as we're going through the kings it makes me think of this asa it says that he did that which was right in the eyes of the lord as david his father 
And in verse 12, it, it describes some of the things that he did. And it says that he took away the sodomites. Old King James says sodomites. In the NIV, it says that he, that he expelled all the male shrine prostitutes from the land. In the New King James, he says all the perverted, sexually perverted persons. So in, in part of his establishing his kingdom, he recognizes the importance of dealing with the sin of his citizens, and so he deals with it. And it says that he removed them, and it says in the rest of verse 12 says that he removed all the idols that his fathers had made. Verse 13, and actually I want to go, well, I'll come back to something. But it says in verse 13, and now it's speaking of his mother, and actually I should just read here in the NIV, yeah, his grandmother. So uh, NIV makes uh, the distinction, but it says in verse 13, and also Maacah, his mother, even her he removed from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove and Asa destroyed her idol and burnt it by the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. And he brought in the things which his father had dedicated and the things which himself had dedicated into the house of the Lord, silver and gold and vessels. So... Again, the extent of Asa's commitment to God is borne out. Not only does he desire to cleanse the land of sinful practices, but he also doesn't show any favorites. His own household, he's willing to deal with his grandmother, who is an idol worshiper, and remove her from being in any position of authority or recognized authority because of her idolatry. And so the Lord really sees the heart of Asa, and it says that his heart was perfect with the Lord all, all the days of his life. The other thing that he does is, because of what verse 15 says, you know, there has probably been a departure in the probably God's people in the southern kingdom from worshiping God, and he begins to bring back these dedicated things that were used in the house of the Lord. And, and again, too, he, his reformation is, you know, large and it, it's great. And he's, he's bringing back again, too, and, and wanting to honor God in the process. Verse 16, it says, And there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel. We're going to see Baasha at the end of the chapter introduced at, at, at one particular juncture in time. But by the time Asa is king in Judah, Baasha is also king in Israel. He is not of the lineage of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and we're going to see how he ends up becoming king in a few verses. But basically, there is now all-out war between them as well. And it says um, in verse 17 that Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he took, that he might not suffer or allow any to go out or to come in to Asa, king of Judah. So what he is doing, what Baasha is doing, is he is fortifying this border city of Ramah, in, in an effort to kind of cut off any supplies from getting to the southern kingdom, and again too, so that he could subjugate the the southern kingdom of Judah. And it says in verse eighteen that Asa took all the silver and gold that were left in the treasure of the house of the Lord and the treasure of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them 
to Ben-Hadad, the king of Tab- Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, that dwelt in Damascus, saying, There is a league between me and thee, between my father and thy father. Behold, I have sent unto thee a present of silver and gold. Come and break thy league with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. What he's doing is offering him this huge bribe of silver and gold. Baasha is, in, I mean, um, uh, what's the guy's name? Ben-Hadad is in Syria. And even though Ben-Hadad has a league or a covenant with both tribes or both kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, he's basically, in a sense, paying him off, asking him to break his covenant that he has with Israel and to come and assist him. So this is what he's going to do. Ben-Hadad agrees to help out Asa. And again, there's a, in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, and I'll reference that in a minute, because um, Baasha has got all of his, in a sense, forces and all his resources in Rama. what's going to happen is Ben-Hadad is going to attack him in the opposite side where he is vulnerable. And, and as a result, and it's a great strategy, as a result, Baasha is going to have to abandon Rama and he's going to have to go fight against Ben-Hadad, leaving this border city with all its supplies that he's using to build up and to fortify it. And again, to, like I said, with the intent to cut him off. And so it says in verse 20, So Ben-Hadad hearkened unto King Asa and sent the captains of the host which he had against the cities of Israel and smote Ijon and Dan and Abel Beth Meachah and all Chinnereth and with all the land of Naphtali. All those places that are mentioned, they're on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And so it says that it came to pass when Baasha heard thereof that he left building of Ramah and dwelt in Tirzah. So he, he leaves, abandons that, so that he can go and, and deal with uh, Ben-Hadad, and he leaves everything behind. Verse 22, Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah, none was exempted, and they took away the stones of Ramah and the timber thereof. So, so what's happening now is Asa is going to send his men to this city of Ramah that Baasha had been fortifying. And he's going to take all those building supplies, those stones, the timber and everything. And he's going to actually use them to fortify his own cities and to strengthen himself. So again, too, this is just a win-win situation for Asa. Because not only is Baasha dealt with, but also, too, he ends up with all these building supplies to strengthen his own cities. So it says that he took away these stones, the timber thereof, I'm in verse 22, wherewith Baasha had built it, and King Asa built with them Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Verse 23, the rest of the acts of Asa and all his might and all that he did and the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Nevertheless, in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, one thing that First Kings isn't telling us about the life of Asa. And again, I just kind of want to fill in a little bit of it so that you understand 
even though here in 1 Kings, it sounds like what Asa did was, was, was a, a great strategy, and it was. But what, you know, 1 Kings doesn't bring out to us, but it's referenced here. It mentions that, you know, these things are also recorded in the kings of Judah, the chronicles of the kings of Judah. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, it tells about Asa at the beginning of his reign. And it tells of this great force of Ethiopians and Lubims that are coming against Judah. And as a result, Asa is put in this situation where his armies are so far outnumbered that there's no way that they can win. And as a result, it causes Asa, especially as a young man, as a young king, to cry out to the Lord. And the Lord is faithful. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 11, that Asa cried out unto the Lord his God, and the Lord said... It is, it is nothing for thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude, O Lord. Thou art our God, let not man prevail against thee. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And actually, I want you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 14, because at the end of chapter 14 or actually at the beginning of chapter 15, as Asa's returning to Judah, he is met by Azariah the prophet, Azariah the son of Obed. And this comes at, again, to on his return of this great victory that they had and entrusting the Lord. And this is what Azariah says to Asa. As a young man, as a young king, he says in verse 2 that he went out to meet Asa, and he said unto him, Hear, me, Asa, hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. It's an interesting thing for him to say, but it's an encouragement basically for him to continue to walk with God, continue to seek the Lord, to continue to trust in Him. And the problem is, is now, you know, many years later when Asa has been established as king, it says uh, that it was in the 36th year of his reign, you know, that in 2 Chronicles chapter 16 tells us the same story that we just looked at here in 1 Kings chapter 15. And again, too, it tells us the whole thing. But what it doesn't tell us here in 1 Kings chapter 15 is that in verse 7 that Hananiah comes to Asa after the successful execution of this plan. After, you know, again, he's hired Ben-Hadad the Syrian and after, again, too, you know, he attacks Israel and his opposite borders and, and, and as a result, Baasha has to leave and and then he takes all those building supplies. It was a great plan. The problem was, is that Asa wasn't trusting the Lord in that. I think sometimes we come up with great plans, but there is no faith or trust in God. And what happens then in verse 7 is Hananiah reminds him, and he says, because you've relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord your God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of your hand. Interesting, because basically what he is saying is not only would you have defeated Israel, but you also would have defeated your enemy, the Syrians, instead of having to rely upon them 
and again to try to establish this covenant or this league. Verse 8, he reminds him of what God did when he was a younger man back in chapter 14 of 2 Chronicles. He says, were not the Ethiopians, Ethiopians and the Lubims a huge host and a, with very much chariots and horsemen, yet because you did rely on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. Verse 9, probably a passage that you're familiar with, and it's a, just a reminder of what God is wanting to do. Verse 9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein you have done foolishly, therefore from henceforth you shall have wars. The consequence of not exercising his faith is the very thing that he is trying to, to avoid, and that's future military fights and conflicts. As a result, he's going to continue to have wars. And then it also tells us in verse 10 that he is angry with what the prophet says to him. He puts him in prison as a result. And in verse 11, it kind of summarizes his life as well. In Second Chronicles chapter 16, Behold the acts of Asa, the first and last. Lo, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Asa, in his 30 and ninth year of his reign, so this is three years after uh, the defeat of, um, of Baasha, it says that he was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. And again, too, it tells us that in First Kings chapter 15, he was diseased in his feet. But here in Second Chronicles chapter 16, it actually tells us that he, and I think the, the implication is God would have healed him. God is still trying to get him to that place where he is trusting the Lord once again. And God afflicts him with the disease in his feet. And instead of seeking the Lord, he goes to the physician. Now, one thing I say, and sometimes people think, okay, well, you know, I should never go see a doctor or physician. No, that's not true. But it depends, you know, the, the important point is, is what is it that you're putting your trust in? I've shared kind of before of how I was hospitalized. I don't know, it's been a long time, 13, 14 years ago with a staph infection, and, and after coming through it, and I had a lot of medical attention as a result. But afterwards, uh, you know, I, I, I thanked the nurses and the staff, but the one I was really thankful to was God. I was thankful that God had given them the skill or the abilities, but I also am thankful because even afterwards when my follow-up, as I would have to go back for follow-up with infectious diseases, um, the doctors said, it's a miracle that you live through this. Because they said normally with a staph infection, it, once it's in your bloodstream, you die within 48 hours. It was at least 96 hours before I even went to the hospital and before they even started to treat me. So he said, it's miraculous that you survive. It's miraculous that you're not paralyzed from the waist down. So, you know, I, I give glory to God. And again, to God is always wanting us to walk in faith. Um, he used the physicians, and I'm grateful for that. But the bottom line is, is I always believe that it's the Lord that does the healing. So anyway, back to Asa. Good king, godly king, had a heart for God. But again, you know, sometimes, and for me, this is a great, you know, reminder that as a king, you know, he 
got to the point where he was exercising his wisdom instead of trusting the Lord. And the Lord is always wanting us to trust in him. Back in 1 Kings chapter 15. In verse 24, it tells us that his son Jehoshaphat is the one that's going to reign. But now we're switching back to the kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, who is the king that is following after Jeroboam. And it says in verse 25 that Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. One thing I will say, too, about the kings of Israel as we go through this, I don't think that there's a single king where it mentions that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. I mean, once Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, introduces idolatry, it is just sinful, wicked, idolatrous king after king after king. The thing that happens in the southern kingdom of Judah is that you do have godly kings, good kings. Not all of them, but you do have some that are mentioned as a result. It's kind of more of a cyclical thing. But you definitely have some in Judah. I don't think you have a single one from the time that... that the kingdom is divided to the time that they're carried away to Babylon. So anytime we start looking at the kings of Israel, you know that it's going to be bad. It's just going to be a, a, hist, a history of the evil that they did, and, and Nadab's no exception. Verse 25, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa. See how it's referencing Asa's reign? of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. So Nadab only rules for two years. Verse 26, it says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. And now we see how Baasha the king ends up becoming king. It says in verse 27 that Baasha the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar conspired against him and Baasha smote him at Gibbethon which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Even in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, did Baasha slay him and reigned in his stead. So that's how Baasha becomes the king of Israel, by assassinating from the lineage of Jeroboam, Nadab. Now it says in verse 29, it came to pass that when he reigned, this is speaking of Baasha, that he smote all the house of Jeroboam and he left not to Jeroboam any that breathed until he destroyed him according unto the saying of the Lord which he spake by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Remember when Jeroboam became king, God was wanting to actually establish him and make him uh, the same kind of deal or covenant that he had made with David. He was hoping that Jeroboam would be a godly king. But when Jeroboam, out of fear, establishes idolatry in Israel, then the consequence of his sin is that he is told by Ahijah the prophet that everyone in his household would be cut off. And it's now been brought to pass. Everything that God says he's going to do, he does. God's word, you know, when a prophet speaks... You know, on behalf of the Lord, he brings it to pass. And now the consequence of Jeroboam's sin, just in the same way, I mentioned David and again to how his heart and his righteousness, you know, extended even into the fourth generation of his family. 
Here, the consequence of Jeroboam's sin also extends as a consequence to his lineage and his sons because of his sinfulness and his idolatry. And as a result, they are all wiped out by Baasha. And it says in verse 30, it says, Because of the sins of Jeroboam which he sinned, which he made Israel sin, by his provocation wherewith he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger, now the rest of the acts of Nadab, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, began Baasha, the son of Ahijah, to reign over all Israel in Tirzah, twenty and four years. The summary of Baasha's life, verse 34, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. It's kind of, you know, we will go through king after king after king pretty quickly from this point on. I mean, from time to time we will dwell on some of the kings and just look at, at uh, their lives a little bit more in depth, but it's just going to go from... You know, again, to the, the wickedness that they did and, and the generations. And the thing, too, that's interesting to me is even though God judges them for his, the kings, the wicked kings, and even the nation for their, their sinfulness and their idolatry, the mercy of God is that they're not carried away captive into Babylon for hundreds of years. The Lord is constantly going to raise up prophets to want to call them to repentance. And, and the Lord is constantly showing mercy. But it isn't until, again, to it gets to that point where they have so hardened their hearts that they're no longer willing to even hear or even consider or even be you know, drawn back into a relationship with God that finally they're going to be carried away captive. But we're going to see a lot of, of, of sinful kings and it just kind of reminds me, too, of even the days that we're living in. It kind of reminds me, too, that we as believers were salt and light in the generation that we're living in. I mean, we might be few in number, but it's the righteous that preserve God's judgment from being, in a sense, judged upon the wicked. Remember when God was sending His two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham is wanting to intercede for his nephew Lot. And he is thinking, well, God, you're not going to judge the righteous with the wicked, are you? I mean, you're, you wouldn't do that, would you? And he says, no. He says, well, if there are 50 righteous there, would you destroy the whole city? And God says, no, I'm not going to do it for 50. And you know how he then brings God down to 10. If there are just 10 people, would you destroy the city? No. And he's probably hoping, Abraham's probably hope, hoping that his nephew Lot, his wife, maybe the daughters and their, their sons, you know, their husbands, maybe, you know, you've got 10 that are righteous that are trusting the Lord. But even then when the angels get there, there aren't even 10 righteous. So God does go ahead and destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But what he does is he saves the righteous out of the judgment that is coming. I believe it's a picture of the last days that we're living in. I mean, you see the world that we're living in and how wicked it is. And yet at the same time, were it not for you, those that are living a righteous life, not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, an imputed righteousness, you are salt and light in this generation. You're keeping the judgment of God from taking place 
And hopefully there are still people that have a softened heart that are willing to be saved. But the day is coming when they're not going to accept, you know, they're not going to want to hear it anymore. They're going to reject it wholeheartedly. And what God will do is he will take his people out of this world before he begins to judge them. And that's what we see, the fulfillment of those things in the, in the book of Revelation. So, history, you would think that people would learn from history, but they don't. Neither does, neither does Israel as we, we study through it. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for the lessons of these lives. Lord, even the example of the, the evil or the sinful kings and the example even too of Asa in the life that he lived, Lord. We just thank you for uh, these examples and I pray, God, that we would glean, that we would learn, and Lord, that we would put into practice these things in our lives. I ask, Lord, your blessing upon your people and it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that I pray. Amen.